I was a teenage Pharisee. Part 2. Starting to wake up. Chapter 4. What's wrong? In which the author explores the kinds of things that alerted him to the fact that perhaps not everything was quite as advertised. Sometimes, you need to have everything blow up in your face before you can see all the various things that were wrong with it all along. So long as something works, you don't want to hear that there's anything wrong with it at all. It works. The whole awkward situation then, when my father got pilloried and sidelined in the church, the only place he really tried to be an involved adult person outside of his job and home, put a huge kink in my family's attempt to live like the whole brethren thing was healthy and beneficial. My father had put absolutely everything into helping out at meeting, putting his family after church considerations without thought. He built his whole identity around it. I remember him going to hardware stores and getting stuff to fix things in the meeting room. I remember him making this sign for out front of the place, making a big white wooden box for kids to put their scripture searchers in, with holes drilled in it to poke in colored thumbtacks with which to chart their progress next to their names, which were printed on plastic labels and stuck on. I remember him buying all that recording gear from Radio Shack and supplementing it as it wore out or broke. I remember him continually copying cassette tapes of meetings, mostly about the brethren being right, to give to old shut-in folks to listen to. I remember him keeping a tape library in the basement of the meeting room. In the Tunbridge Wells brethren, there are no official ministers or elders, so he had a place in the meeting which allowed him to work. He did until that was taken from him in the midst of some political infighting, with conservative versus liberal factions throwing down, that is. He hung his head in shame for at least five years without looking up and sang into a deep depression. These were my teen years. It would be nice to be able to say that this was only his problem and was only about church so it didn't really cast a pall over the whole home for those five years. It would be nice to be able to say that. But in fact, it coincided with my own adolescent existential angst period. It contributed to my own alienation, my own realization that there were two worlds, the meeting and Canadian society, and that I had no place in either one. People came over less and less. There was increasingly a silent, aching emptiness, occasionally broken by snarled, snapped, passive-aggressive comments from all of us, and a lot of us not really talking. And my sister and I went through adolescence steeped in that spiritual climate. I would like to say my church environment provided a safe place for people like us, that the warmth and involvement and acceptance and support and love we were perhaps not getting at home was supplemented in part by our church. I would like to report that its youth group events made us feel accepted and valued and supported, that they were a welcome release of tension, and that we found friends there. I would like to say that going to meeting was helpful to people like us instead of worsening the problem, instead of putting us precisely where that problem was coming from. It would be nice to be able to say all of that, I imagine. But I am a child of that cold, toxic environment, to be sure. I have done many things to try to develop in those love areas in which I did not develop very much as a child and young man, in those joy areas. My success has been limited at best. Formative years are called that because they are the years when we are formed. And in my formative years, I learned about God, 
but it was in what can only be described as a context of continual shame and judgment. We suffered there at the hands of our brethren, and we gave it right back to them. All we had to cling to was our piety, our family reputation for strictness. And that reputation got stabbed in the back and thrown into a ditch in the name of love for Jesus, for his lambs. And we bled shame and judgment everywhere we went. Shame and Judgment In my home and in my church, both Christian ones, it must be admitted that I did not really learn much of anything about mercy, grace, or forgiveness. Those words just meant God wasn't going to hurt us, probably. Unless we did worldly things or questioned our parents or the meeting's decisions. In Christian homes as I know them, things are a bit different from those of regular people. Very often, things that would be seen as understandable, inevitable, childish slip-ups to regular people are viewed as something much worse in a Christian home. They are often treated as outright sins, as chronic character flaws, as evidence that one is ultimately unworthy, as betrayals of one's culture or family, as absolutely fatal and final. Signs one's whole life is headed unerringly in a problematic direction because of, let us say, that pin you wore in your jacket or that thing Mrs. Jessam claims you said at recess that one time. Although it is felt that God may forgive people, on paper anyway, these failings are often taken far less lightly by his followers and are generally seen as harbingers of a downward slide. Not just understandable mistakes, evidence of one's true character, a progression towards inevitable moral ruin, indication one perhaps isn't a true Christian after all. The message to children in such homes is clear. Jesus suffered a bit more pain because you argued instead of obeying your father without question just now. Jesus' time on the cross was worsened because you didn't remember to memorize your Bible verse, and one wonders if you will even grow up to live anything like a Christian ought to. One fears you will not. In fact, were it permissible for a Christian to gamble, one would be wise to bet against it. I remember my sister, perhaps six years old, crawling under a chair and crying bitter tears when my father told her he worried she might not even be a real Christian because she wouldn't be silent and sit still when we were doing family Bible study, nor keep her head covering on. I remember my own anger and shame when my posing an alternate interpretation of a scripture at age 12 caused my father to permanently put an end to family Bible study. He has never really discussed the Bible with me since. Ruth writes... Shame was a second skin. I lived in an acid bath of shame, some self-inflicted, some meeting and family inflicted. I could introduce you to people who remember what I was like in those days, who could describe the transformation they've seen since I left. It hasn't been overnight, the shedding of that shame skin and the healing of those acid skulls, but it's been slow and steady progress for some years. Anne speaks less of specific shame and more about something I see a lot too, a general feeling of never being normal enough to fit in, of being freakish and odd. I believe our upbringing exaggerated this, though many people outside cultures like ours feel it too. She says, Feeling shame? There is shame for doing bad stuff, which isn't much of a challenge. Most of the stuff I want to do isn't bad, I don't think. Mostly I just feel shame for being weird and not fitting in. 
However, it isn't bad, except when I'm in uncertain and new situations, primarily social situations. Then it flares up a lot worse. Ex-Taylor Hill Brethren psychologist Jill Mitten says that along with memory problems, people raised in strict Brethren groups are marked by an inability to easily connect to and maintain connection with others, to handle new people and situations, to talk to outsiders, to move around comfortably outside the meeting. And many Christians live as if shame is a precious gift from God designed to help us keep from sinning and thereby worsening Christ's sufferings. I have to think this is quite hard to present to non-Christians as good news, as the gospel, but many of us were raised under this weight. Unsurprisingly, many Christian kids become adults with unworkable, disproportionate amounts of shame in their hearts. Shame about almost everything and a willingness to believe that somehow almost anything bad is at least partly their fault. Kids are like that in general anyway, not just Christian ones. Still, I think we worsened the problem, and I think many of us still suffer it. Many kids of divorced parents can't shake the idea that the divorce somehow happened because they didn't behave well and therefore upset the marriage. Church upbringing gone wrong can be a bit like that. That's what it was for me and a lot of others. Many believe that if only they'd obeyed better, church culture would have been beneficial to them, that the problem was them and not it. Because of this, to this day when I work, when I live my life and move around in the world, whenever someone gets annoyed and unforgivingly critical with me, I get disproportionately defensive. I fight for my very life over every little criticism. Given my background, I certainly in any situation never expect to be cut even a modicum of slack because I'm really not used to that ever happening. So I fight. I'm instantly the accused, on trial. I was reprimanded at one of my jobs once. It wasn't fair that I was in trouble to begin with, but how they handled the rest of it was according to the book. All that kept going through my head was, this is so so much much more fair and compassionately compassionately handled handled than anything anything I I ever saw at church. For one thing, I got to bring a representative, someone to be on my side. I got to tell my side of the story. It was handled discreetly, confidentially, and without gossip. And no one was considering firing me or anything like that as a first move. I was told someone was unhappy about something, and then I was forgiven. So that was all new to me. I come from an environment in which overreaction is the order of the day. I am very much a child of that. But at high school and after, I started to learn about people who weren't raised like I was. I started to see from a great distance how regular people dealt with judgment and criticism. Not everyone needed to fight to the very death to protect their apparent right to breathe oxygen, despite having absolutely said what was felt to be very much the wrong thing that one time. Maybe some random person accusing you of something didn't mean you had to fight for your life. Because sometimes random people just say random stuff and you don't have to care about it. Crazy thought. The fact that it was a novelty and inspiring to even meet people with this freer approach to life has everything to do with our being judged all the time, with feeling entitled to judge others in return, often as a form of hitting back first. And the problem wasn't just that we had that bad stuff going on. There was also something good that was missing, something big. A Missing Sense of Proportion
I used to have a musician friend named Bill, and one time he did me the favor of pointing out that I didn't know how to take criticism. I kind of knew this already, and was deeply ashamed of it, but Bill needed to tell me that it was obvious to everyone, so he criticized my inability to take criticism. I was heartbroken. We played in bands together, and did a lot of recording and messing about with musical instruments and songwriting, so Bill was mainly noting how I responded to various people criticizing my musical or songwriting choices. Bill was no fool, though, and he noticed what he was seeing about music showing up in other parts of my life, too. Bill was fond of profanity as a way to make points in a brief, concise, colorful, memorable, and quotable way. He was very good at it. Because of the delicate ears of some of my audience, I am going to bleep the most colorful word in his quotable quotes. Bill said, Mike, you don't have a working f*** it. You really need one of those. Sometimes you really just have to say f*** it. He then told me the secret of what to do when someone offers unsolicited criticism or complains at you. He said that it's properly done like this. Number one, you listen. Number two, and then you say, okay. Number three, and then you resolve to think about it later, when you feel ready emotionally, rather than in the heat of the moment. Number four, and sometimes you just have to say f*** it and not worry about it. People can be after all, Bill said. He said you need to give yourself time, that great emotional buffer. You wait to see if you have a sense of proportion that may kick in given time. You're likely, at some point or other, going to receive criticism of something you care about, over which you probably have the final say. In my case, it might be something musical, like what keys or tempos or instruments I was choosing for my songs, or something not musical, like how I dressed, my hairstyle, things I said, or even how I took criticism as to my music. According to Bill, the point was that it all really was your decision, as someone else's opinion wasn't terribly pressing. You could ignore it, or take it as seriously as you like, and you could always think about it later. This all seemed too good to be true. The key factor in Bill's method, that's step four, was a human faculty that sounded mythic to me. The f*** it capacity. It was an ability I'd never before seriously considered a human necessity. It wasn't stressed in brethren circles. Obviously, Bill was right in his criticism of my coping skills. So I would like to claim that right then, I carefully, number one, listened, number two said, okay, and number three, resolved to think about what he said later, tried to keep my day from grinding to an erotic halt until I'd worked through this criticism of my inability to take criticism, because that's how I was. So I tried to file it for later, with the possibility of number four saying, F it, if it didn't seem to make any sense or didn't seem to really matter. It would be nice to be able to say all of that, I imagine. But really, I argued with Bill about it right away, and he pointed out that I was f***ing up step three right then and there, and to stop it. I know I'm not the only one like this. My emotional growth and spiritual growth as well were tied up, hung up, and wholly seized up every time I was judged by anyone at all. Didn't matter how unfair the judgment or how unqualified or even irrelevant the person judging me. I just lost my temper, panicked, locked up and shut down, immediately as the criticism was offered, until such time as I'd kind of worked it through, which sometimes took a few days. This meant that if anyone or anything wanted to neutralize me in the role I was playing, wanted to kind of take me off the chessboard entirely, 
I had a handy off switch. All that was required was to put me into the I'm being judged mode that would keep me fully occupied, stuck in an agony of self-doubt and furious logic loops without that it escape key, without Control-Alt-Delete or Reset. Because this is what happens when you don't have a it function. No sense of proportion. Everything matters, no matter how trivial, especially every judgment. And we live lives in which absolutely everything positively cannot matter to us. We can't function like that. So at the time, I wondered, could I really do this? Say, f*** it? Using that mythic sense of proportion? Was it really for me a very small thing if I was judged by someone just as the Bible says it is? Or was it everything? Was I never full of care about things, or was I stressed out by everything all the time and careful about everything? A simple test to see if someone has a sense of proportion about something. Can he or she laugh about it at all, or at least tolerate someone else releasing a bit of emotional tension with humor? Having no sense of humor about something often reveals you have no sense of proportion about it either. Pharisees and Christianese Having read the Bible, I increasingly found in my late teens that I had been raised to be the modern Christian equivalent of the Pharisees. Those people who Jesus sparred with so much in the New Testament, the ones who wanted Jesus Christ dead. I was a teenage Pharisee. It was a vile thing to know. I could see that I was one of those superficially pious people. Kids at school sometimes judged me a Pharisee, though they didn't call it that, and I knew deep down that they were right. They saw me not going out to movies, not attending high school dances or celebrating Christmas and Halloween. I didn't talk normally like they did, having an extensive list of things I wouldn't say. They knew there was no alcohol in our house. And rather than being impressed by how virtuous we seemed, how adherent to an elevated standard of decency, they saw through it all, saw our true motives, and judged us to be religious show-offs. People who were doing things to try to be better than everyone. People who were kind of cold and weird and mean inside, but outwardly rather polite. Certainly never swearing, but not being forgiving, loving, warm, tolerant, patient, comfortable, and inviting to be around either because of that weird religious thing we had going on, which made us creepy. They were no fools. That's exactly what was going on. A weird religious thing. And God made it manifest in time, by letting everything we built fall down, by confusing our languages so we couldn't even agree what anything was even called anymore in building our Tower of Bible. I knew that Jesus, not meeting people, was supposed to be my example for how I ought to live. I was supposed to be and do good like Jesus. But the meeting people were very frequently counting on me to not act like Jesus, or overtly telling me to quit it. I'd read the Gospels. I had a pretty clear idea of who he was. And he wasn't just one thing. And he was difficult a lot of the time. I can't imagine he ever faked a plastic smile, said he was fine when he wasn't, or was fake nice to someone he was annoyed with. There was nothing plastic about Jesus. I was talking with Ruth the other day, and she said how dumb she always found it when church passion or Easter plays or movies or whatever depicted Jesus as what she calls Valium Jesus, with the blank face, even when being tortured and killed, impassive, maybe even smiling a bit sadly. I always tend to call that depiction of him stoner Jesus, you know? People are afraid to imagine him with emotion, so he's just kind of blank. But that's not right. 
The scriptures say he cried. They have him giving a number of challenging, wild, crazy-sounding speeches. They have him being scary enough to clear an entire marketplace worth of people and animals out of the temple at Jerusalem. They have him being sorrowful and being betrayed. And they have him expressing a lot of disappointment and frustration generally. Often in the Gospels, Jesus is talking to Pharisees. One thing that was pretty clear to me is that he treated Pharisees differently from how he treated anyone else focused on them repeatedly, was harsher both to and about them, in public, no attempt to be quiet, gentle, kind, or forgiving to those guys. Now what was that all about? Jesus of Nazareth has become nowadays for many people little more than the patron saint of serenity and meek mild tolerance and kindness. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is how a lot of people need to see him. Someone who said not to judge, who criticized no one, and wanted us to be nice to everyone. The God of nice. A person who'd never make anyone reconsider anything. I think this weird view of the man Jesus all comes back to that control thing. If Jesus of Nazareth was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief today, conventional modern Christian culture would tell him to cheer up to rejoice, to get Prozac, to think on whatever things are good, etc., fake a smile, get singing. If he was angry or frustrated or impatient, he'd be once again told that he'd lost control of his holiness and to go fix it. A stiff regimen of church activities, helpful books, songs, and propaganda would no doubt have been prescribed. Because that darker emotional stuff's got to be controlled, right? You can't just feel those feelings. But we know that Jesus of Nazareth wept and shouted, groaned with frustration, got angry and threw stuff, was harsh or rude with certain people, got impatient and outraged and stuff like that. And he called people rude names, which many Christians have assured me somehow does not count as name-calling. But we were told that Jesus was the Christ, God become human, to show us how it ought to be done then wouldn't that mean either A, Jesus wasn't perfect and broke brethren rules, or B, that all that emotional stuff didn't make him imperfect, though it doesn't sound terribly like controlling one's emotions. As I've written before, this Gospels conundrum has folks scrambling to argue that Jesus didn't really get angry or frustrated, or certainly didn't ever lose his temper with anything, that his calling the Pharisees a bunch of names did not count as name-calling, that his questioning their parentage wasn't rude, or that because he was God, that this made wrath one of the many things that only he could do, but that we, of course, can't. So we shouldn't try to be like him, because we can't. Note that the latter view tidally removes the Christ from serving as any kind of role model for Christians, that it replaces a Messiah with a minister, a crucified pariah with a certified pastor. The fact is, by all accounts, Jesus was continually challenging to most people, and there was one group he seemed to keep coming back to over and over again. It wasn't the half-Jewish Samaritans, even made one the star of a story. He didn't rant and rave against the Romans who occupied Israel at that point. He even praised the faith of a Roman soldier, contrasted the soldier with how faithless he felt the Jews were. He didn't rant about drunkenness and adultery, didn't speak out and take a clear stance against gay people, didn't publicly denounce people who were shady with money. He didn't rail against the government. It wasn't even the Sadducees as much who were the targets of his ire. It was the Pharisees, the Jewish religious elite, at whom he took aim most often. They got both barrels over and over again. 
There is no parable of the good Pharisee, and Saul of Tarsus had to stop being one and become a new person entirely with a new name before God got any use out of him. Jesus goes into Jerusalem and in public places and in synagogues, quite unprovoked, warns the regular folk not to be like the Pharisees, that they'd have to do better than the Pharisees, that their faith, their relationship with God, had to run deeper than that. And he uses a word for them that he just might have been the first person to ever use in quite that way. It's the word that in English is translated hypocrite, though we use it differently than Jesus did. In Greek, it's Hippocrates. Jesus is recorded using this word no fewer than 17 times. No one in the Bible uses this word but Jesus. The KJV contains the word hypocrites in the Old Testament, but it's not the same word. That Hebrew word means obscene or godless. Hippocrates means actor, literally someone performing under a mask, someone fake, lacking sincerity and substance, plastic, putting on a show for the world, inauthentic, not revealing his or her true nature and personality, presenting an invented, idealized nature and self as if it were the real one, giving insincere emotional and social responses rather than genuine ones. It looks very like no one in human history is recorded using this word for any purpose other than to speak about literal, theatrical performers, until Jesus. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is recorded saying about the Pharisees, Everything they do is done for people to see. He is depicted earlier in Matthew 6, warning his disciples, Take care not to do your good deeds publicly or before men in order to be seen by them. He was trying to teach a different, better way, a way that wasn't religious and had to do with the kingdom of heaven rather than human systems. And the first thing that's got to go if you're serving heaven rather than human beings? Giving thought to how to gain their notice and approval, limiting your choices in case people might not understand and they might fail to think well of you. I think it's safe to say that we need to rethink our carefully posed I'm praying and I'm reading the Bible and I'm feeding hungry children and I'm teaching Christians action photographs and videos on the internet and announcing on social media that we're doing these things and claiming it is our right to express or show off our piety and Christianity in so doing. That we're just humbly seeking to inspire others by being a good testimony to our own piety. I think it's safe to say that along with whitewashed sepulchres, bowls washed only on the outside but dirty inside, and offspring of vipers, that this word Hippocrates shows what Jesus' problem with Pharisees was and how to be one today. Backstabbing, but pious-seeming fakers, showing off their religious activities to an audience. For status, to hold on to an image of heightened decency. What Dallas Willard calls the lure of religious honors. The Pharisees had people literally blow trumpets in front of them when they were going to the synagogue to pray. We said grace audibly as a group in a McDonald's rather than each thanking God for his Big Mac discreetly to be a good testimony. The Pharisees marked up their faces to indicate they were fasting from food. We fasted from television and music all year long every year and everyone knew it. We were terrified to walk past the front of a movie theater for fear someone might think we'd been inside it. The Pharisees made a show of donating money to charity. We've got magnets on our fridges and eye-catching t-shirts and bumper stickers, which leave no one in any doubt about the fact that we support a cause financially. It's a hard habit to break. Step one is becoming the sort of person who is no longer impressed with it. 
who is no longer accustomed to viewing it as normal and proper and good. You can never control it with rules, of course. You have to do something else instead is all. Follow a different path. Take your heart out of what is mainly a performance. So the lack of applause won't be able to hurt you any more than the presence of it will be able to make you feel smug. Do stuff for God only and see how you like that. Pursue discretion about spiritual intimacy and practice private good. Think about how you use the internet and social media. See how deep the satisfaction you might get out of anything that is self-promotion as to Christian things really goes. See if maybe you want something deeper. Notice how you feel when you're getting likes and supportive comments for religious activity you've shared online. Notice what's going on in your heart regarding it until you don't feel so into it anymore. Until you don't like yourself when you're merely liking likes for people liking Christian stuff. And then do something different. See what that's like. Quietly collect pledges to do a marathon run to save money for cystic fibrosis research. Then do the run. And don't tell anyone. Don't breathe a word of it online. Don't spend the year afterward wearing a shirt that says, I ran for cystic fibrosis. Do it, but don't announce it. Don't raise awareness of yourself and what you're doing and what kind of an awesome person you are to be humbled to take part in it. Just do it to get the money off to the people. Jesus did not raise awareness of the plight of sick people. Everyone knows it sucks to be sick. He either walked by them or he helped them. And when he healed them, he told them quite often not to tell anyone what he'd done. Who knows how many people Jesus healed or helped who told no one and never made it into the Bible. So try making a difference without raising awareness of you. Try it, not in order to follow a rule that says that advertising your charitable efforts is bad or wrong. Try it and see what you then know about yourself. See if there's something special in it. I can't tell you. It's a you thing. When you're at the cash in Walmart and they ask you if you'd like to donate money to a children's charity and you say yes, refuse the colorful little paper they're going to get you to write your name on to post it up on the wall to show how many donations they've collected and that you did one. Give the money, but deny Walmart and you any wall-posted recognition. Or use amusing pseudonyms. You can probably guess which one I, Mr. W. Sepulcher, prefer to use. I can only tell you what worked for me. For me, every Christian thing I did, I was doing primarily because it had been made a rule. A rule I was afraid of losing the trust and respect of my church culture if I broke. So the first thing I really seemed to have to do was break that pious acts rule until it wasn't a rule anymore in my heart. I didn't make a new rule requiring me to break that people-pleasing rule. I just faced my fear. I just didn't do meeting things. It wasn't easy. In fact, my culture was a far bigger thing than I was in my life, certainly a far bigger thing than God was. So God simply took the trust and respect of my church culture away from me, and that did the trick. This finally freed me to do things because I wanted to do them for God, and not because I was afraid of not doing them and worried about the scorn of brethren people. I don't know if he'll do that with you. I don't know if you need to worry about all that or not. Performance isn't bad. It's an art. It's a creative, expressive endeavor. If you're singing a song or acting in a play or doing a dance routine or scoring goals for an audience's approval, do that. Because it's why you're doing it and there's purity in that. It's people you're trying to touch. There might even be a benefit in competition. 
when it comes to spirituality and a walk with God and being transformed into the image of Christ, though, very different because then it's God who you're trying to touch and competition really doesn't belong. So maybe try both audiences to see the difference, God and men. Because it's important. Jesus never seemed to leave Pharisees alone, actually walked into Jerusalem on a few occasions and went into the temple of the synagogue and provoked an argument with the Pharisees, waited until they showed up before commencing in one particular case, ignored his brother's advice to avoid the Pharisees for his own safety and the good of his reputation. Why treat Pharisees differently than he was treating anyone else? Why not try to teach them? Why condemn rather than forgive them? The Christ's Complaint I don't think it's hard to tell what Jesus' problem was with Pharisees, whose name means the separated ones, the ones who drew apart from the rest of Jewish society to do religion right. For one thing, they were malicious. If they couldn't get you arrested by trapping you in rhetoric and logic, they'd incite mobs to pick up rocks or throw you off things. It's clear that Jesus took exception to their venomous scheming and backbiting and treachery in calling them offspring of vipers. Would you rather be called a son of a female canine or a son of a snake? He asked them, why do you seek to kill me, when they weren't admitting it even though they really were looking to have him executed? This is very in keeping with the Old Testament, which speaks out against people who are underhanded, whose mouths are open pits, who oppress the vulnerable, who delight in the downfall of others, who lay nets for other people's feet, and whose own feet are quick to shed blood. The Old Testament has many grim warriors who slew many people, but we don't read of them using sneaky tricks or stabbing anyone in the back. We don't have a bunch of stories about biblical patriarchs gaining power through character assassination and political intrigue. But there was something else besides the venomous malice of the separated ones. Besides the sons of vipers thing, Jesus uses the imagery of a tomb which is full of rotting bodies inside, but is painted gleaming white outside, along with the image of a bowl, which is polished up bright and clean around the outside rim, but left filthy inside where you'd pour your Cheerios. This shows that he's looking on their hearts rather than their lifestyles. He's seeing people who are extremely pious-looking in their lifestyles and habits, but inside they are twisted, decaying, and dark. This was the root of the malice, the reason for the backstabbing. They were dangerous because they needed to look pious no matter what it took. If they were standing behind you and you were doing anything that made you look good, they were apt to stick a knife in to remove a competitor and better their status or look to do the same to your reputation. Our Lord's only comment on the Pharisees' clothes is to disdain their attempts to look religious, and he also disdains their need to sit in a special seat of honor in the synagogues. I think, just like today, in Jesus' time, there were a whole lot of regular folks who weren't terribly religious or terribly depraved either, but who looked to the Pharisees and said, We regular guys do stuff we're not really supposed to. We're certainly not living quite how we should. If we lived how we were supposed to, we'd be living like the Pharisees. They're hardcore. Those guys are doing it right. And Jesus wanted to warn everyone who would listen that those guys were not doing it right, though they were certainly hardcore and hard-hearted. People were supposed to get well inside and get in touch with God and get the dented up, twisted, rusting parts of their psyches dealt with. 
and they weren't ever going to succeed at that by letting Pharisees be the religious ones for them, nor by imitating those guys and their focus on how upstanding they looked and what others thought, rather than upon what was really good and would actually work. Jesus was there, walking the walk, telling the truth, helping people out, forgiving everyone, believing in people's willingness to turn around and follow him, changing the world and filling it up with virtue and worth. The Pharisees, by contrast, were going around looking religious and leaping at the chance to be the punishers of people caught looking less religious than they. The act of leaping to judge others makes clear that need to seem the dominant, empowered, superior person. They were worrying about being publicly seen to be giving money to charity, yearning to be famous for going to synagogue and praying a lot, and looking pious and stoning people and so on. I think the response of Jesus to this can only be characterized as disgusted if his choice of imagery is any indication. Poisonous snakes, tombs filled with putrefaction, bulls smeared with filth inside. So the Pharisees, publicly shown up by Jesus, plotted to get him killed, those sons of vipers. Those vindictive, censoring, repressing, image-conscious hearts didn't get light shone into them and truth spoken into them either. They remained dark, twisted, scheming, and mean. They worked to get rid of Jesus, to silence his ideas. For good, they thought. Didn't quite work out that way. Sensible Voices I think it's very interesting that Jesus' main problem with the Pharisees, their for-show lives, expressed in the word hypocrite, has been utterly subverted today. Now that is a bit too handy, convenient, not to be able to plainly hear what Jesus was saying about the people who consistently drew his ire and approbation. Nowadays, we use the word hypocrite to mean that people are inconsistent in maintaining their pious lifestyle, not strict enough talking a strict game, but not doing it for real. What they're preaching is stricter than what they're actually living. Like one should be a more hardcore Pharisee if one is to avoid being called a hypocrite by Jesus. That's totally backwards. I think it's clear that whether Pharisees followed their own rules or not, Jesus' problem with them wasn't really about whether they followed those rules. It was that they weren't living authentic lives. We're giving the appearance of following rules that were all about giving a certain impression. They were performers under masks. It wasn't like if some of the Pharisees were doing exactly what they said and were following all of the rules, getting all of their lines right, playing their best side to the audience and hitting their marks perfectly, that Jesus wouldn't have thought of those Pharisees as actor hypocrites. That wouldn't fix his problem with them at all. Good actors are still actors. It was the for-show life that earned them the names and insults playing to an audience, wanting to be noticed and known as a religious person with exemplary self-control, the control required to follow all those rules. Back to control again. We grew up under it and grew up trying to wield ever greater amounts of it over ourselves and others, thinking far more control was possible and useful than it ever really was. Louisa writes, I am a full-blown, able-bodied, proud, deceptive micromanager, driven by fear of chaos. Control is sin, not the loss of it. Anne says, Control an issue? I am a bit of a control freak. Need obsessive. It is tied to feeling overwhelmed a lot. I don't think this is religion-related. Yes, a need for control has limited my options. I do try to push outside of my comfort zone in order to have experiences that I'm scared of. 
It's primarily parties and group social events that I would tend to avoid. But I have done it a lot, and I can keep pushing against that discomfort. Regarding wanting to control others, I'd like to think I've learned to accept difference. But who knows? I can appreciate people from a distance. But I like to maintain my personal freedom and control over my immediate surroundings and my time. Jake argues that some control is necessary, but it's always tempting to wield more than you need. He says, Control is important to me in certain situations, situations where I feel I have responsibility. Looking after kids or teaching someone, I struggle with the need to control too much. But I think a loss of control is often when God moves the most powerfully. A loss of control I've seen can also be the fastest way to unravel a situation and watch it burn, though. I'm speaking of two different types of control here. Trying to control what God communicates or does in a situation is a bad idea. Trying to control the kids you're babysitting for their own good is a good thing. The Messiah bore the weight that we don't have to and works and lives through us today. He's the one that does the work. But at the same time, how could you believe that not controlling those you have responsibility for at all would be a good idea? Pastors don't allow people to practice blood seances on Sunday mornings for a reason. Growing up, we always knew that some Christians were what we called more legal than the rest of us. We didn't know the word legalism or legalistic. Marijuana is legal in Colorado. My family, however, was legalistic. But to us, legal was something other Christians called us when we weren't around. And we felt that ideally we should, but didn't really want to, live more like the most legalistic people willing to be gathered with us. Some people left us and joined up with even more legalistic brethren groups when we didn't crack down on TVs and sleeveless dresses enough. And we kind of assumed that God wished we were more like those guys, that it would have been a better testimony to the world, that it would have made God bless us more. Never mind how passive-aggressive, quietly superior, judgmental of us, and protecting of their own reputations those people seem to be. Never mind all the scandals that came to light eventually. Never mind the clear correlation between legalism and mental illness. Never mind the clear connection between child molestation among us and the perpetrators of the abuse consistently being the biggest legalists we had to offer. But no one ever said in any sermon I ever sat under that the key problem with the Pharisees was legalism. That's what Jesus meant by hypocrites, actors under masks living fake performance lives according to image-conscious law. Legalism will keep you from Jesus, and your legalism will keep other people from wanting to talk about Jesus with you. Because if you're host to a legalistic spirit, not only do you not know Jesus as you claim to, you would be getting one of his patented Pharisee lectures if he were here today. Legalism is something people do instead of knowing Jesus. You cannot seek to put people under law and follow a path of genuinely loving them at the same time. It's how you create a mechanized human system for fabricating the outer appearance of being a Christian and acting in love instead of genuinely knowing and connecting to Jesus and those people. You can't follow Jesus or serve his interests or help out his people while following legalistic motives and methods. It's a whole different thing, an alternative, a substitute. Love will never lead you to legalism. Legalism will never lead you to love. There is a great gulf yawning between the two. They are heading in opposite directions directly away from each other. So I'm saying that right now with an echo effect. In fact, 
the gospel message seems to be utterly at odds with the Pharisee message of placing one's hope for daily life in using careful self-control to follow obsessively devised rules to keep ourselves from doing bad things through our own fleshly willpower. Christianity just isn't about that. And that tired old religion doesn't work, doesn't give us more open, loving, forgiving hearts. The root problem involves not only our doing bad things, but also our not doing good things. More troublingly still, at root, it's not just about us doing bad things, but about us being bad things. It's not just that we won't do enough good things, it's that we aren't enough good things. God doesn't just want us to follow rules. He wants us to be creatures who naturally do, enjoy, help, and draw out good, who do not do any of those good things for reasons that aren't good too. He wants this to occur naturally, exactly like a cat does not wake up and say to himself, Now, I must remember to diligently investigate in a timely fashion any and all scurrying sounds I hear during the course of my day. Exactly like a dog does not go to sleep at night and say to herself, I trust I found enough smelly things to roll in today. Unselfconscious responses to, and participation in good, for good's own sake. That's what God wants of us. And he doesn't necessarily use human power hierarchies, committees, creeds, systems of belief, doctrine, rules, and liturgy to do it. He needs our hearts given to him personally, one person at a time, alone, not brainwashing, not vows and communities of sin management. I'm about to make myself breakfast because I got hungry. I try to approach God like that. I look to see if I'm hungry for prayer and reading the Bible and so on. See if God has built that into me. And what I find is that he did. So I try to never fake that desire. Try to never make it mainly about work or duty. Of course, sometimes I have to make sure I have some time set aside to read the Bible. And then I have to try reading it to see if I can get into it. But if I can't, I don't panic. I just wait and try again another time. And if I can, I don't inform the internet. Like today. I will see if I can get into the Bible. And if I can or can't, you'll never know. I see no good in my telling you stuff like that. It's private. That's me trying to grow out of being a Pharisee. Because Pharisees didn't live like that. Step one, when something isn't working, is to stop doing that something. But why did Jesus come down so hard on people who'd done nothing worse than live a life that could be publicly seen to be mainly about ritualistic, habitual religious observance? Why no kind words? Why no gentle redirection? Why not one parable about the good Pharisee? Why the public denouncements tarring them all with the one broad brush? Why dismiss them all with generalizations? I think God wanted people to accept a Jesus who'd come to announce that pretty much everybody had been getting God and religion all wrong. And I think that desire, that message, was and is directly threatened by what the Bible calls the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, trying to live a Christian-seeming lifestyle so you'll look Christian to people, performing in the play that you have instead of a life, for an ever-changing audience made up of people who certainly never paid for tickets to anything. Some people have musicals, others are more avant-garde. Killing with rocks and angrily hurled Bible verses anyone who stands in the way of your lead role in that play, or is talking during your performance. 
If you've got that puffing up, pride-swelling, shame-based religious yeast fermenting and rotting away in the darkness, you can't let the light of Jesus shine in or you'll lose all that and need to be someone else. You've got to keep relying on self-control and what things look like rather than what they are if you want to keep growing all that all-too-human-reeking stuff. You're a candy shell and a dung-flavored M&M to use some modernized Bible-esque imagery. But maintaining that candy shell will seem sensible to you. Essential. If my candy shell ever cracked, man, would I stink. But maintaining that candy shell will seem sensible to you. Essential. Like it's the only real option, with Jesus not being seen as a viable one, certainly. And it won't seem like a viable option for someone to get real. It will seem like the most irresponsible form of folly. It won't seem sensible at all. Because Jesus wasn't well received by sensible people. They were always concerned about things he or his disciples did. In fact, the whole Bible is full of stories about sensible people who don't have a clue, who have missed the point, who have concerns, whom God has little to do with in his ongoing work. The priest Eli, sensibly expressing his concern to the weeping, babbling, praying Hannah, future mother of the prophet Samuel, anointer of King David, that maybe she was drunk and shouldn't be at the temple praying to conceive a child. David's older brother Eliab, sensibly expressing his concern over what looked to him like a brash teenager who just wanted attention, hanging around offering to go fight Goliath and shouldn't be doing that. King David's wife, Michael, sensibly expressing embarrassment and concern about his subjects seeing David's undignified, unkingly dancing before the Lord in jubilant worship and thinking he shouldn't be doing that. Job's comforting friends, sensibly assuming that they knew what was going on between Job and God, and it just had to involve Job being secretly sinful, and so he should repent. Judas Iscariot sensibly expressing concern over Mary wasting expensive ointment by pouring it on Jesus to honor him rather than selling it and giving money to the poor because she should have done that instead. The prodigal son's elder brother sensibly expressing his concern that prodigal behavior shouldn't be rewarded by celebrating his homecoming. Jesus' brother sensibly warning him he shouldn't go into Jerusalem to fight with Pharisees or he might end up dead people sensibly expressing concern to Jesus over how impious it looked for his disciples to be picking grain to eat when they were hungry on the Sabbath, so they shouldn't do that. People sensibly asking whether it was the blind man or his parents who had done something they shouldn't, as he was clearly blind. People sensibly expressing concern about Jesus healing people on the Sabbath, because you shouldn't do that. People sensibly expressing concern over Jewish Christians eating with Gentile Christians, because Peter shouldn't do that people sensibly expressing concern that Gentile Christians weren't being required to get circumcised sans anesthesia because clearly they should be made to do that, people sensibly expressing concern over Christians possibly buying meat that might have been part of a pagan ritual before being sold afterward because you shouldn't do that. It goes on and on. Sensible voices sensibly expressing an ever-growing list of concerns over how things looked, over the appearance of propriety, over purely imagined harm or entirely made-up disaster scenarios, needing to standardize, control, and clear everything in advance with power people, talking about should and shouldn't instead of is, adjusting, correcting, and controlling rather than loving, tolerating, connecting, and helping, making things worse in the name of keeping things from...
getting worse, not doing anything good, but disrupting good by claiming to speak for good and interfering with someone who's doing the real deal. Doing nothing but being careful for and about everything. Being concerned only with expressing concerns. Some of us grew up drowning in the concerns of sensible people. Modern Pharisees All this stuff about Pharisees speaks pretty strongly to me because I grew up with it and lived it. Of course we heard, read aloud at church each week, every single word that Jesus has recorded saying to and about Pharisees. And of course, we applied every word to other Christians, and in particular, to people who said one thing and did another, rather than to religious play-actors, rather than to us, the gathered saints, to Catholics, rather than meeting folks, to the televangelists who had the sex scandals, not to our laboring brothers and the lives we expected them to live. Hypocrites, we thought, were people who couldn't deliver on their promises of superior self-control and piety. Not like our guys could. You didn't see our leaders being accused of taking money they shouldn't have or of sexual impropriety. Well, you did, but we weren't supposed to talk about that. Tell it not in Gath, of course. What was the good in tearing down the Lord's people? We all fail. There's no perfect group of Christians. Don't dwell on it. Move on. Nothing to see here. Get over yourself. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Tell the weeping woman she should be quiet. And we looked down on people who weren't as strict as we were. On people one could see were clearly less legalistic than we were. Less hardcore. Who couldn't keep the rules. Who didn't even have very many rules. Who had less control. Less willpower. Fewer ambitious resolutions and vows. And a lot of us, it must be said, were pretty fake, performers under masks. I increasingly felt how fake I was. I was barely a person, let alone a Christian. God was repeatedly putting this before me, waiting for me to take it a bit more seriously. But I had always been taught that being a good testimony or sending a good message justified doing those fake things. It turned out that doing things for show is a very bad testimony. And our life decisions really were being made solely on how things might look. We really fussed over how Christians shouldn't talk and what kinds of clothes they shouldn't wear, what they shouldn't laugh at, and what shouldn't give them any joy whatsoever. But there was no understanding of virtue in all of that. No health, no growth, no excellence, no worth, no authenticity, no simplicity. It was subtractive rather than about adding good stuff, conforming to a church image rather than being transformed in an inner way by Christ. It was only lifestyle deep rather than something that started at the root of us, something we had to concoct and simulate rather than Christ working among us. And I was entirely a creature of that. When I was a teenager, one June I signed an electric bass guitar out of the music room at school. So I had a new instrument to try out all summer long. During the summer, I would not have band practice or school. It would be nothing but meetings. Way too much time. So, an electric bass guitar. I felt like I'd been given a Ferrari when I got to take this instrument home for free. I felt a bit guilty because it looked cool, but I did it anyway. And that kind of thing was very good for me, in a time when not much in my life was terribly happy. And I was happily plugging it in and trying it out, and my mother stood looking at me for a minute, troubled and then said pensively, Imagine if Mrs. Hayhoe could see you right now. 
and right away, I felt the shame. On some level, I knew that what had just happened right there was pretty messed up, and that neither my mother nor I had created the messed up situation, but were pawns in it. But I still felt that cold stab of shame. It still took the heart out of me. It still mostly ruined playing the bass that summer. Not that I stopped. And my mother, for her part, was fearing my loss of church status and what might be done to me. A sensible fear, it turned out. When asked about the need to keep up a godly appearance and being conscious of everyone's eyes being on one, Melody writes that she was aware of it. Always, this was always emphasized to us. Image was everything, and what will people think was a constant refrain. Mary writes that growing up, she was always supremely and constantly aware that everyone, both in and out of the meeting, were watching to see how godly or worldly I was being. I felt non-meeting people constantly judging how non-like them I was, and meeting people holding up yardsticks to every single action, haircut, word, piece of clothing, friendship, trip destination, etc. Everything was judged. Life was like that for many of us, even for simple things like going to our first movie in a movie theater or buying our first alcoholic drink. Mary writes, I went to the movies and felt chagrined as Gremlins 2 was a really bad movie. Just not well done, I mean. I felt cheated, like it was supposed to be this wonderful experience, and the fact that the movie sucked didn't help make it the hoped-for first. It did help to get the first over with, though, which I was glad for. Then buying wine, which I knew nothing about, and so chose Mogan David for the first bottle, as it was what I saw used at meeting. Both experiences made me feel stupid, which I hated. Master of nothing, just a newbie who had no taste, no teacher, and no help in figuring out what was good and what wasn't worth it took non-meeting friends to help school me and all that, at least in my 20s. Anne, whose parents were missionaries, mentions it being more difficult in the third world countries where her parents worked to seem godly. It was worse in third world countries where my parents were missionaries. I had people mention that certain clothes weren't appropriate. In the U.S., we were always well within the norms of godly compared to others. I guess mom and dad raised me with enough self-consciousness that I wasn't doing anything that made me look worldly. We had an electric keyboard that we hid under the bed so the locals wouldn't see it. Mom wanted to be able to play piano, and we took lessons. The reason we hid it is that, this is how my dad explained it, the locals associated musical instruments with parties and drinking, so it was best not to stumble them by revealing that we enjoyed music. Joy was seen as something that could trip up new Christians. When I went to my first movie at 21, I drove an hour away so no one would see that particular first, even though I knew that my going to see Star Trek VI was a good thing that God had no problem with at all. We'd talked about it for an embarrassing amount of time for months in advance. By that point in time, I was no longer afraid that God would make me smash my car if I drove it to Star Trek VI. That superstitious fear had eventually dried up and died off very slowly. But I was afraid my close brethren, friends, and relatives would draw away from me after expressing concerns at my worldliness and lack of legalism, and that I would soon be kicked out of the church, banned globally from social events and taking communion, cut out of the dating pool entirely. And all of that happened, of course. But I can't say it all started with going to see Star Trek VI and not hiding it, because that isn't true. 
In reality, by the time I was 21 and had gone and seen Kirk and Spock, all of that Pharisee-style ecclesiastical vengeance was more or less a foregone conclusion and had already started happening. Even my cousins were drawing away from me in disapproval when I no longer needed to read novelizations to find out the plot of movies just hitting the theaters, when I didn't need to wait until the movies were available to rent, when I'd clearly been to a movie theater. I had brethren friends who were getting the same treatment too, because part of being a Pharisee is assuming that you are normal and that it's everyone else who is odd that you do God's service to try to nudge others towards being, thinking, feeling, and acting more like you do, that it's okay to continually comment on their differences to you. It involves not seeing what cataclysmic damage simply doing this little thing repeatedly can do to groups, relationships, and people's personal identities to their very souls. But next, the worst part. Ecclesiastical Divorce Hurts Kids We had our first local church division in 1991, and we kept far more than our fair share of Pharisees in that ugly prolonged church divorce. And we lost the lion's share of the teens, 20-somethings and 30-somethings, most of the middle-aged people too, especially if they had children. Because we wouldn't so much as let people use a 20th century translation of the Bible without making snarky comments. They couldn't add hymns to our hymn book, which had last been updated, traditional hymns with certain verses excised, over a century previous. They couldn't pray without using thee and thou, and not get lectures about that either. We wouldn't give them anything. We smothered them with concerns and punished any and all lapses in their legalistic duties. If they were really getting into the Bible because of a modern translation, if they discovered some modern hymns that absolutely spoke their heart and wanted to sing them at meeting, we sneered or showed concern at that instead of joy, just as if we didn't love them at all. We dropped them several rungs down on our brethren status meter, warned against everything they wanted to do, counseled, never following their hearts, but helping maintain the status quo instead. In the winter of 1989, I attended Barakel Winter Youth Camp. At this camp, I met literally hundreds of Tunbridge Wells young people. The TWs managed to lose pretty much everyone that I met there, literally in the next couple of years, apart from those who'd married Hayhoes, were Hayhoes already, or both. I miss those people. I think it's dumb that we don't talk anymore. But we expected them to put up with absolutely anything we did at meeting and attend regularly, even if they got nothing much out of it personally, because that was what it meant to be a Christian walking properly. And having decimated our groups with the huge, stupid division, we were soon gearing up to have another one. Once the glow of the first one fully wore off, we were spoiling for it. And all through the 90s, young people not only kept leaving our churches, but they kept on dying too. Car wrecks, suicide, accidents, murder, a truly troubling amount of that kind of thing. And there was a spate of near drownings and other lucky escapes too. It was almost like growing up in that toxic screw you if you won't go along with what's done spiritual environment was hurting people. Like young folks were being eaten by things. For a long stretch there, leading right up to the 2003 division, we were losing a young brethren person every single year. A couple years, it was more than one. 
When my friend Doug, not yet 30, shot himself 14 years ago today, one of my first thoughts was, when is this ever going to end? And there were sensible voices droning on through all of this young death, of course. They looked at the young people and said things like, well, she dated quite a few boys, or I heard he was into drinking alcohol, or her attendance was getting pretty spotty, or he was dressing pretty worldly. And then they said something that I think could not be more Pharisee. The Lord is speaking. And there'd be that ominous pause at the end and a refusal to admit what was really being said. God killed that girl for going to the movies and dating a Pentecostal fellow. God killed that boy. As a warning for going to NHL games and drinking the occasional beer. And he'd done it because he wanted us all to know how very unhappy he was with our lapses in legalism. Oh, be careful, little mouths, what you drink. Rabbi, who drank this corpse or his parents? The Lord is speaking. I think that when you try to escape a Pharisee Christian lifestyle, heart focus, and mindset, there are those things that want to eat you. Things which are guarding the threshold of Pharisee land, put there as watchdogs to keep everyone in. I think there are seven things worse than the first thing that the Pharisee lifestyle promised to rid you of, waiting there drooling. Things from which the Pharisees who raise you are now claiming they shrug can no longer protect you given your life choices. And I think when older people talk about death and injury as predictable, sensible, loving, divine responses to young people having a beer at a hockey game or going to a rock concert, they are almost giving permission to calamity. They are taking a side with the things, blaming the victims, saying they were asking for it going there at night, dressed like that. Sad, of course, but not surprising. As I said, we were, many of us, living pretty fake, for-show lives, filled with superstitious prohibitions and an almost total focus upon lifestyle, pastimes, dress, and outer appearance, lives characterized by shame, fear, and obligation. We weren't seen at church events without our masks on, and we had to show up at those events if we wanted to keep our seats. We had no Christian liberty because we'd been burdened with the yoke of not letting our side down by ever failing to look like a peculiar people who abstained from certain things, much like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Sikhs, and Muslim fundamentalists do. We were demonstrably more than willing in all the unceasing political infighting to cut our own brothers loose if they refused to see things our way. We silenced Bible teachers who didn't take a hard stance against alcohol, modern translations, and live entertainment. And we taught people that their feelings weren't part of them, but rather self-indulgent things to carefully not have. Things to not disrupt the proceedings or bother others with. People were, or were meant to be anyway, machines of self-control. Non-selves. For us, self-control didn't mean don't let yourself go too far, but rather Don't let yourself out at all. Keep that sick person locked away until glory. Eventually, we got to the point where we were lucky to have anyone under 60 years old left in most of our assemblies. But there were some of us, despite everything, and some of us had a pretty horrible, empty future mapped out for us from that point on. Then each year, what would happen as we geared up for the upcoming sequel to the previous division with all of the rumblings and boycotted Bible conferences that went along with that was that suddenly another young person would die. 
What's troubling is how much these deaths utterly validated some very pharisaical people's very pharisaical view of exactly how it was that God dealt with Christians. The Lord was speaking, and as we well knew, he mainly spoke through calamity and death to warn about people whose legalism was slipping, whose feelings were showing, who dared need more than we were willing to feed them. Dan Spence spoke out against accused sexual molesters among us, So when he got cancer of the tongue and had to have it removed and then eventually died, people said the Lord was speaking to him for accusing the saints. I was doing bad things, like listening to Pink Floyd's Animals album. You Shafts of broken glass You're nearly a good laugh Almost worth a quick grin You like to be on steel You're hot stuff with a hat pin A good bum with a handgun You're nearly a out to meeting, so as not to lose my seat there, no matter how I felt inside about it. It was all about God, wasn't it, and how he loved us? Eventually, I got so I just couldn't look at the situation with Pharisee eyes anymore, and I started to see the endlessly obsessive, predatory machinations of things all around. We weren't living human, let alone Christian lives, and still, young people died. When is it going to end? Was the Lord speaking back then? I think he was. 
but not to that now-dead young person taken so suddenly and often quite without any sort of warning. I think when people tut-tutted over the outer appearance, the lifestyles, the pastimes, the clothing, hairstyle choices, and patterns of speech of young people who were starving spiritually, given no voice at all, who were in a dog-eat-dog, biting-and-devouring piety-carnage-fest, I think those tut-tutting people showed no awareness of what was going on, of what it meant to feed God's lambs, of what it meant when sheep died, driven away by nothing less than us. I think they showed no spiritual discernment whatsoever. Certainly no heart. They could preach for an hour about love in the scriptures with a sob in their voice and a tear in their eye, but they couldn't make any of us feel wanted or safe. Instead, we felt like continual threats to the pious look of the one right place, perpetually in doubt, under suspicion, certainly until we found a brethren person and got busy raising children. Some of these Christian children grew up to be adolescents who had been very lost their whole lives, despite being Christians who felt they'd been saved from an eternity in hell after death, their lives on earth were an empty hell unto themselves. They wandered through their days lost in terms of having people to talk to, Christians they could trust, who'd connect them with God instead of saying they had to stop going to movies if they wanted to earn his ear again. Lost because they couldn't find any open-hearted Christians who knew anything at all about how to love someone who was slightly different or who wasn't sure about all that stuff he absolutely had to be sure of. Often, a random person in a bar was going to show more kindness, openness, warmth, concern, and decency than old brother so-and-so would at meeting, despite his continual sermonizing about love, purely as a theoretical, theological, scriptural topic, of course. Were older people shocked and saddened when some young guy who'd been known to go to NFL games and maybe have a beer at the arena suddenly died? I think so. They didn't feel it quite like we who were the same age and under the same stressors did, though. I don't think they could have. We felt like things were coming for us if we fell out of line. And we knew we were out of line. The Lord's things was how these things were presented to us. And for these folk to suggest that the Lord had killed this young guy or girl to scare others into stopping going to see Johnny Cash or drinking Coors Light at the cottage or whatever told me more than I wanted to know about everything. That stuff divides young from old, drives in a bitter wedge, ends relationships for good. People are dead, and others are still talking about it. I recently found out that a young brethren guy who an awful lot of people loved, who I never knew as an adult, mostly because of not being allowed to attend brethren stuff since the 90s, died tragically last week. And people are shocked and sad right now, particularly the young people roughly his age and in roughly his situation the ones who actually knew and loved him. I know nothing about him, except we knew a whole lot of the same people, people I love. And when I heard that even in the 21st century, those sensible Lot's friends, Judas to Mary voices, have been literally heard saying, the Lord, the Lord is, is speaking. speaking. That made me wonder. Again, I thought, when is this going to end? What if when we die, a key way in which our value is seen will involve not how pious and abstinent we are remembered to have been, or how decent and Christian we seem to people looking on, but how much of a hole we leave in people's lives. How much positive virtue is no longer being shared now that we are gone. How many people are left who we loved and who will miss us loving them. Not just that we made our church group as a whole look good, 
Not just that we sent the right message to onlookers and helped our side look right. I don't think that's such an odd thought, but starting to have thoughts like this one increasingly made attending meeting and trying to connect with God a real wrestling match back in the day. I didn't want to leave with the young folks who were leaving our movement or even run with the rebels who'd been out partying at night then would sit up breaking bread the next morning. Either would have felt like running away. But I felt oddly trapped, staying with some very suspicious, sour, sensible old people. Most of the middle-aged people had left, certainly any who I'd had a good rapport with. I felt like the dour old faces and I were joined at the hip until they decided to cut me loose. It took less than a decade for them to do that to me and all of my friends, some of whom then never made it to the 21st century. Another Role Model You don't have to be wrong to be missing a or the point. Focus and emphasis are very important. The message I received in my formative years was that Christianity focused entirely upon two things, really. Number one, getting saved so you're not going to hell. And number two, not sinning or looking like someone who might be sinning. That was it. You couldn't not sin, so you had to get saved from hell. But then you had to spend the rest of your life being careful to not sin by obeying the Bible. If you ever obeyed a rule, and surely the Bible had no purpose but to provide limits, that was the Bible helping you obey. If you didn't obey the Bible, though, that was all you. The more you read the Bible, supposedly, the more you would obey it. And that was Christianity. End of story. What else was there? Was something missing? It really felt like something was. Someone, maybe. Reading Dallas Willard recently... Something that should have been obvious all along suddenly became more clear to me than ever before. A positive element. How did we miss it? Well, we definitely tended to gloss over much of what was in the Gospels so we could leap ahead to our favorite bit, Paul and his church truth. While reading the Gospels, we mainly focused on Christ saving us from hell and setting up the church stuff to the exclusion of all else. Christ was kind of being relegated to the position of being the founder of the Plymouth Brethren Movement right after Jan Darby himself. But in the Gospels, there's a whole lot of other stuff. In them, Jesus calls people to be his disciples, to follow him. He doesn't just tell his disciples, believe what I say and obey the rules in the Old Testament and you won't go to hell. His followers were to learn to be like him too, to fill in for him in his absence. He was leaving soon and they'd be it. He sent them out on practice sorties while he was still there. Not committees, pairs at most. He had them practice doing the stuff he did by himself. And it didn't simply involve living quiet lives characterized by attending a lot of church and reading the Bible most of the time. It involved being a revolutionary movement of people who needed something more than maintaining the religious status quo who were moving in and pointing toward a direction that needed seeking to take possession of. In a very real way, Jesus expected them to try to perform every function he did apart from dying for the sins of the world. And Jesus Christ did and said an awful lot of things before dying for our sins. Important things. Unfortunate, then, that we mainly read the Gospels only to look for stuff about him dying for our sins and things like Matthew 18 and 20 that we could warp to somehow being about the church, because we missed a lot of other stuff. And here is the result. 
We knew Jesus as the Son of God, who we certainly aren't, who only can save us from sin, which we certainly can't do ourselves, who could do miracles we certainly can't do, which proved he was the Son of God, who once again we certainly aren't. And he died for us, because we couldn't save ourselves. So we were saved and needed to wait for the rapture for it all to work mostly. We got it. Jesus Christ is perfect. We suck. There can be no comparison of the two. Don't even try. Remember that. End of story. But something was missing in all of that. Jesus Christ spent an awful lot of his time chiding the disciples for not being able to do the same miracles as he was doing, for their lack of faith and understanding. Yoda from Star Wars talks a lot like Jesus in this regard. So certain are you, always with you what cannot be done. Hear you nothing that I say. Because Jesus was certainly their savior, but that wasn't all. He was their rabbi, their teacher. And he wasn't just teaching them to watch him be God. He wasn't just teaching them to tell people that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God and to wait for the rapture. He was telling them to go around living, acting, helping, talking, and interacting in ways very like he was doing as human beings who were in tune with what God was up to and acting as agents of his kingdom. He was teaching them stuff above and beyond merely trying and failing to keep the law. They were following Christ, trying to learn from him, learning to do what he wanted done in the world. Why weren't we? Increasingly, talking to them must have had a similar feel to talking to him. He taught them, and after he'd left them, they went on to live lives that were remarkably like his. They preached and wrote things remarkably like what he would have, had he still been around. They were like Christ. As a result, they got called Christians. If you spoke to them, casually, you would find their thinking and feeling to be Christ-like, Christian. His stamp was all over it. It bore his character. Now they were people who had been internally transformed into his likeness by him rather than through religious efforts and dutiful works of the flesh. They didn't have to die for the sins of the world, and they weren't the son of God, yet this didn't seem to be a problem at all. They still lived those Christ-like lives, not just on Sunday, and they didn't even need to go to Africa. Ethiopians came to talk to them. Some people want to discredit Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, because he's so challenging and dogmatic and dissatisfied and crusty. Sound like anyone to you? Apart from Yoda, I mean. And epistles by James and Jude and John sound just like that, too. These guys all talk like Jesus. Talking like Jesus is supposed to be contagious. But I was raised to, in most ways, live and behave and speak in the very opposite way to Jesus and his followers. This is to say that I was raised to live as a Pharisee. All of this first started to become clear to me when my aunt kindly advised me to stop being dissatisfied with the status quo, to content myself with it and be quiet, to stop trying to do better than it, to only say things Christian people would find positive, uplifting, and encouraging, encouraging them to positively continue right on doing everything the way they already were. My trouble was that I thought we were supposed to be Jesus to people rather than just be walking advertisements about him as an abstract concept. I thought that Jesus not being down here anymore, that we were to be his agents, his assistants, not just a marketing campaign for an immersive worship experience and self-help program. But my aunt counseled me to avoid making people think more deeply because people don't like that. It upsets them, doesn't make them happy, draws their ire. 
In particular, she impressed upon me the importance of not always making people question their own assumptions, biases, and certainties, though we all have those. To lay aside seeking authenticity and instead celebrate the real deal, having been found long ago by men of note among us. Because none of us were Jesus nor apostles, and so we weren't to try to act like them. That's not what it means to be a Christian, she told me. She told me she sympathized as to having doubts, but that no one wanted any of that around here. It It won't won't fly, fly, she kindly explained. But I had been reading about Jesus with new eyes, and I think he was rubbing off on me a bit. I wasn't trying to be arrogant, but I was increasingly characterized by dissatisfaction with us, with our culture, with our habits. So much of it seemed contrary to the Bible. The Pharisees weren't being held up as good examples by Jesus at all. I didn't want to be a Pharisee anymore, and the more I grew beyond that, the more it upset the Christians around me. It occurred to me that Jesus is never once recorded as having said anything insincere, nothing fakely positive or emptily, vaguely, distantly cheerful. No white lies, no flattery, no ego-stroking, no politicking. He was unadornedly blunt, and I took this rather to heart. I started out quite blunt, unadorned, rough around the edges, and straightforward myself. He's so straight up, students who approve of me say. But that didn't fly with Christians. And the problem was, the more I tried to walk with God, the less interested he seemed to be in changing that. I wanted him to. He seemed to be making me worse. People who spoke to me found the experience eroded their certainties, and my aunt told me, in a blunt, straightforward, unadorned way, that she felt that this was unbecoming of a Christian. Christians were nice, they were unchallenging, and they were, above all things, contented people. She bluntly told me to at least try to fit in and to only do and say things that people liked. She called this being loving and gracious. If I said something and people didn't like the sound of it, this was evidence that I wasn't loving or gracious, that I didn't care. Where was the love in it? And if I shut my mouth and paid little attention to church stuff, this was not evidence that I didn't care, my aunt told me. Quite the opposite. That was how caring people behaved. Gracious, loving people are not discontented. So I was to blend. It was the loving approach. But it struck me that Jesus Christ didn't act like this at all. Neither did Paul or anyone who wrote really any book of the New Testament. And the more I continued to read the Bible, the more it continued to change me. I was being told that if I wanted the right to be discontented with our stifling, dusty, soul-crushing church culture, if I wanted to voice anything other than resigned support, that I'd need to actually be the Son of God for that. And I wasn't, so I'd never need to consider speaking out. It was time for conformity and compliance, not growth and repentance. At the very least, if I had an unpleasant view, I would need to be an ordained apostle or something, writing the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If something really wasn't working for me, I was to be as quiet about it as Scientologists are expected to be in the same position. Resign complacency was the order of the day. Being encouraging. This all made me really think... Passion, outrage, vehemence, and really any strong emotion whatsoever of the kind seen in the Bible was being seen as utterly inappropriate, as self-indulgent and fleshly. I was optimistic about the prospect of growth and change. I had a lot of friends who were the same way, but so many others were pessimistic about the same thing. Change was where I looked for hope, but others in our meetings saw only fear in change. And it was much the same in more conventional church circles. If you wanted to be challenging, you needed to be a tenured pastor. And you needed to be challenging people to keep doing what they already were doing, only maybe a bit more. 
Also, it needed to sound more like a high school pep rally than like anything the apostles would have written. It needed to make people smile. And you needed to smile when you said that stuff. No indignation. No passion. You needed to not sound like the Apostle Paul even a bit. Nor like Jesus of Nazareth. Not even like Yoda. So no. Much fear in you there is. No. Divisions? Divisions not make one great? We were to be providing a steady susurrus of so fortunate and blessed we are to be where the Lord would have us be. Where Jesus and his disciples went all over, meeting all manner of people and eating and speaking with them, we were instead to live quiet, solitary lives, limiting our social interaction mainly to a small subset of the most devout members of our meeting. Where they went out into the world and walked freely through it, we were to stay in the meeting, letting it schedule our week for us. Where they had been worried and stressed by pretty much nothing ever, we were to be ever mindful. Where they were too busy being to worry about the sensible voices cautioning how they might seem to onlookers, we were haunted by those voices every day of our lives. Where they were trying to accomplish good, we were to appear pious. Where they had spoken directly to people in very upfront, forthright ways, we were passive-aggressive gossipers who winced at anyone speaking in a clear, blunt way among us. Where Jesus was kind and uncritical of children, the poor and the sinful, but vocally dissatisfied with upstanding religious people, again, we were the precise opposite of that. Where Jesus and his disciples engaged with everyone and everything in their vicinity, we became ever more detached from our own communities and took clear positions against and boycotted things. We were saved, all right, and we were trying, mostly through shame-fueled church lifestyle restraints, to avoid doing anything that anyone might think looked like it might possibly eventually somehow lead to theoretical sin. But we were hardly following Jesus. We were resolved to take a different path from the one he and his disciples had walked. I didn't really know this at the time. I didn't start to suspect the great difference between being Christ-like and being what we were being until I started taking awkward baby steps towards following him. Being a disciple, instead of just fitting in at meeting and fearfully avoiding the disapproval of Christians who follow Christians instead of Christ. Once I started that, though, it all kicked off. People started waiting in line to tell me I wasn't acting like a Christian. Because Christians act like Christians, not like Christ, apparently. Dallas Willard said something I'd not really thought about enough before. Being more like Jesus will make you better at your job, a better friend, a better parent, a better human being. It will make you stronger and wiser. Because if Jesus was anything, Willard writes, it was effective. Funny. I think we were so focused on Jesus sacrificing his life that we missed how incredibly impressive that life really was and how competent and incisive and powerful he was as a person, how brave he was as a personality. We kind of thought that being more like Jesus would make us useless, too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good, would require us to be everyone's victim would increasingly make us utterly passive, would make us into nearly inert non-people who anyone at all could walk right over. But nowadays, I think that being more like Jesus will not necessarily make you quieter and more content and meek. It just might give you a lot of focus and a lot of skills and then light a fire under you. It might inspire and empower you. And that stuff scares people. Because religion is supposed to make you more docile. It's supposed to be a comfort. It's supposed to be an opiate. That's how Karl Marx saw it anyway. It never was that for me. It woke me up, cleared away the scales from my eyes, filled me with the conviction that things weren't right. 
made me deeply discontented and uncomfortable with what was expected of us and being done to us in religious circles. Funny that. Taking the Wheel How did I get from being who I'd been raised to be to someone who got kicked out? As a Christian kid, you really don't have a lot of choice in much of anything, not even what shirts to wear or what food to eat. But like with a lot of people, a change happened right about when I got my driver's license. When I was in the middle of my teen years, as one does, I started to take charge of my life and my growth just a bit. I made choices. I opted out of some things for my own reasons, even if I didn't fully understand why. I was very conscious of eyes on me at this time and pressure mounting against my choices because I was starting to learn how to look after myself, was starting to find what I needed. I think this is what happens when a child starts to grow up. An increasing cascade of only partially understood choices, an individual path slowly becoming obvious, the teenager taking further steps in the way he should go, the way that's right for him or her. I think it's an incredibly harmful thing to interfere with this delicate process, to bring a child up in anything other than the tenor of his way, to try to mold the child overmuch into something that is entirely your own idea and not very them. So I started making choices. I eventually refused to play sports at all because there was never any joy in them for me. But I started taking long walks late at night under the trees and stars and moon because there always was. I started unabashedly talking to people, mainly, only one at a time, or in very small groups, avoiding crowds and noise altogether, turning my back on group activities. I stopped eating what my mother cooked and started cooking for myself, learning to cook things she didn't. Then I didn't have to eat at specific times. If I was up all night practicing my insomnia, I just might need lunch at 3 a.m. If I slept through breakfast, I just might need that at 3 p.m. To sensible onlookers, this was all really foolish. How would I ever hold down a job or go to school? At university, I took a lot of evening classes. The single three-hour session-style class instead of two 1.5-hour lectures each week. Even if there was meeting that night. And throughout my twenties, I did nothing but shift work, with a lot of evening and night and weekend shifts, all spinning around the clock without any real pattern, even if there was meeting that night. So I built routines that fit my actual life, and worried less about what people might think of it all, eventually. And I did the same thing at meeting. I started refusing the one-size-fits-all ways to view God and life and everything else, along with those vintage 1923 ideas, fashion tips, and lifestyle constraints. And I started actually going to actual God for that stuff, to see if I could get something that was more real and more workable, something that was alive, something for my spirit, because I knew deep down that I was starving. Something was missing, no matter how many meetings I attended. I needed to be saved even though I'd already asked Jesus into my heart. In fact, looking back, I think he was saving me the whole time. The meetings increasingly became empty celebrations of things meeting wasn't actually supplying me. And I was increasingly resentful of being required to celebrate things I knew weren't being delivered. It felt like mocking or sneering to attempt anything of the kind. And I found that sometimes, simply not attending meeting seemed to really make a lot of emotional and spiritual problems melt away like snow in June, because our time was heavily defined for us. Louisa writes, Socially, I felt like I had a time card where they expected me to, quote, punch in for every one of the five meetings a week 
plus young people's, plus whatever social occasion was happening, many. I remember one three-week period where every single one of the 21 nights was planned for me. I hated it but had no clue how to successfully get out of it. In other words, without me feeling guilty. Once I missed gospel meeting because I had a throbbing headache, and a guy about my age said to me the next day at the Brethren Publishing House, Jesus was there last night. Where were you? I heard that one a lot, too. Jesus was there last night. Where were you? Also, variations upon, you don't get to wait for the bus after school with us because you've missed young people's meeting the last two times. I withdrew from a lot of things. Downside was boredom and isolation. Upside was I started to rapidly get to know and turn into my own person. This drew a fair bit of disapproval. I heard some lectures about the dangers of sheep wandering off from the flock, not wandering from the shepherd. It was assumed we were to find the shepherd by following the flock. There was a price to be paid for all of these anti-group decisions, of course. When you stopped going with the current, you'd better be able to swim against it. Refusing to play sports meant I was unable to connect to almost any male people my age, and likewise, unable to show off and display my dating potential to female people my age. Make no mistake, in the world outside my church, being a good dancer or singer led women to suspect one might be an equally skilled lover. This being absolutely denied to us meeting teens meant that there was only the one remaining advertisement of future bedroom prowess left. Sports. Other guys got sweaty and wowed girls with their relentless, driving, surging, thrustingly unceasing feats of agility and endurance and strength. It's what we had, not being Amish and not having barn raisings. And I was staying home or sitting off to one side bored to death while the interminable sports were played. Of course, some girls actually were drawn to guys with strong, confident opinions on Scripture. Increasingly, though, my opinions were the wrong ones. My thinking tasted foreign and unfamiliar. My thinking got less black and white, more nuanced and harder to follow, and it equally got less and less conventional and satisfied with simple answers. This was certainly a panty tightener. Locked him right on. At least at my youth group, there were members of the opposite sex. Melody writes to tell me, I dated a wonderful Lutheran guy when I was about 20, but my parents were so negative about him because he didn't go to the gospel hall. I went to a really small hall, about 20 people, and there were no single guys. I wasn't allowed to go to church with this boyfriend, since it would mean missing my own service. I eventually ended up marrying a guy I met at another gospel hall. Everyone was thrilled, and no one told us to get counseling. He ended up having an affair and leaving. Anne writes, It was pretty challenging to have a boyfriend. In retrospect, it sucked that when I came home and told them I was dating someone, I immediately knew they were depressed, disappointed, unhappy. Not really fair to a young adult entering her first relationship. To know that unless the other person is in the meeting, it's a no-go for your parents, and any mention of your boyfriend will be upsetting to them in the extreme. In fact, when the relationship ends, to know they are happy is maddening. I was 30 and had a really hard time telling my parents that I was going to take a cross-country trip with my boyfriend. It was super hard for me to stand up to them and say, we are sharing a tent, deal with it. I married him because we wanted to move in together, and I didn't have the guts to do it without getting married first. So, yeah, they had, have, a lot of power over me. I would like to think it's diminished, but it's not gone. They give me a lot of ropes since I'm married. They mostly leave me alone. 
it doesn't stop them from asking if I'm reading my Bible. I mostly lie when I'm asked that. So, yeah, I'm still afraid to tell them the truth. I also struggle with whether it's worth sharing with them that I don't think homosexuality is wrong, or more accurately, that I think it's wrong to say homosexuality is wrong. Sometimes it goes like that. You do what everyone says. Then when it doesn't work out, suddenly you're asking, where is everybody? Who wants to explain what just happened? I did exactly what you said. It didn't go well at all. What do I do now? Crickets. A lone tumbleweed rolls across the screen. All too many brethren young people tried to alleviate the parental disapproval by marrying someone they were already having sex with, only to have the marriage end in divorce. This is really Anne's own story. But many of us just retreated from everything. In my late teens, to a large degree, I faded away into the background and was unnoticed and generally forgotten by everyone. All that was noticed or remembered was that, for some mysterious reason, I was weird in some troubling, indefinable way. I didn't know why I wasn't normal, but increasingly I came to realize I couldn't become normal either. I hadn't been designed that way. And I never learned what it's like to work as a group or a team, striving for the same goal and experiencing any form of success as a group. I've always been on my own, looking after myself with random people asking why I was not the same as they were and why I was doing other stuff, stuff they'd never considered. How can you not love blank? Why would anyone want to blank? I don't think I've ever been part of a group or a team and had it end well. Some of us are like that. Some of us have no group skills and in fact suspect that groups aren't designed to meet our needs at all, just as we have little to offer a group. Some of us seem designed to watch from the sidelines. A lot more can be seen from there, too, I can tell you. It adds an undeniable clarity of perspective. Even at home, I was drawing away. Cooking my own meals meant I had taken from my mother her only real way of showing me she loved me. A bit later in life, I started getting my own cars fixed at garages and finally could afford cars that didn't need to be fixed very often. This removed what had been my father's only real way of showing me he loved me. When you decide to go it alone and look after yourself, it may be necessary, but it costs something. Systems and collectives exist to try to share resources and make things convenient. If you can't belong, you have to do things yourself. For example, refusing the one-size-fits-all belief packages on offer at church and moving past 1923 in terms of lifestyle, old was as holy to them as modern was sinful, did that too. It meant that I could still read the Bible, I could still pursue a relationship with God, but I'd be doing it alone. I would not be allowed to teach or help out or even socialize at the church, and eventually I would be excommunicated and shunned for life. I've never been asked to teach children or teenagers anything by Christians. In the real world, it's my full-time job. Boo-hoo, one might say. Snivel-snivel. Sad stuff. But as Jed Bartlett might well ask, what's, what's next? next? Good question. For me, anyway, first I had to gain the courage to reject the sports, the family and church stuff, without doubting that I was headed somewhere good, without faltering in the belief that there was something else available, other than all that stuff that clearly didn't work for me. That was tough. It has taken most of my life, because for most of my life, I have been desperately trying to convince uncaring lesions that what they're offering doesn't work for me, that it just really, really doesn't, but not to be insulted about that. And so, is it okay with them if I do something a bit different that might work for me? It, it's not. And for some reason, 
I've always hammered away at people, telling them things they don't want to hear, telling them that I tried all their stuff, telling them I was starting to suspect that they themselves didn't take their stuff as seriously as I had, telling them that I didn't think they ever really put what they were selling under the microscope nor to the test, because I knew that not only didn't it work for me, it didn't look like it was working for them or their kids. I did this for most of my young adult life, and it didn't get me anywhere. I indulged in various exercises in 90s-style postmodern Christian deconstruction and self-expression. I spent my time on making cartoons, comedy songs, funny videos, scathing blogs, serious essays, tell-all books, in internet forum marauding, and that kind of thing. And while these may have been amusing and thought-provoking for some portion of the population, they really weren't felt to be anything most good people respect as moving on or positive. And they haven't quite cut it for me entirely either. They are not the end of a story. So what's next, indeed? If step one was, seriously, this really, really doesn't work for me, and step two was not needing permission from others to go on a quest for something that would work while developing a working f**k for use when people harangued and attacked and vilified, shunned, excommunicated me and questioned my commitment to God and my sanity as well, then what would step three look like? What next? There really is a part three to this book. It can't possibly live up to all this hyping it, though. Christ instead of? When a child is raised Christian and chooses to remain Christian and not to pursue an atheist, Muslim, or Orthodox Jewish path, people have no trouble understanding that choice. It only makes sense. That Christian-raised person is simply being true to how he or she was raised. Even if a child is raised Christian and then chooses not to pursue Christianity, people understand that also. It happens every day. It's not terribly unusual. They have simply turned their back on how they were raised. That's an easy story to tell, too. In my case, as with many other people I could name, it is an entirely harder story to tell. I was raised to follow a church Christian lifestyle, yet I clearly felt I was choosing to pursue Christ instead. To people at my church, this seemed utterly contradictory and incomprehensible. But to me, the two were increasingly not the same thing. Meeting felt like an impediment to my Christianity, rather than a place to hang with God. I eventually was forced to realize that my birth culture had been an idol, planted smack in my way while I was trying to get to God. I didn't know who made the church culture an idol, but I knew that I had grown up worshipping it as one. I showed up, made the sacrifices, bowed down, prayed, and shaped my life decisions and weekly schedule around it for years. There was no room for God in my life, in any way that didn't primarily serve meeting culture. I believe God eventually needed me to choose between the two, Him or our meeting culture, which to serve. Unsurprisingly, this outlook of mine was upsetting to meeting people, and the objection most commonly raised was that meeting culture had worked for so many for generations. I wouldn't know about that. I do know what meeting culture usually does to people who, through no fault of their own, clearly don't benefit from it. It punishes them socially. The collective authority of the meeting falls upon that one person. The shame stick comes out. And the victims of this unchristian nonsense are not few. In my experience, meeting culture was kind of an endurance test. Far fewer stayed than went. 
which seemed to kind of be the point. A smug, ghastly misuse of First John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. If you're in a Christian group today, they went out from among some other group which you are now not of. Guaranteed. There's no original group left. My culture went out from the Anglican Church in the Victorian age. There was something inauthentic, unworkable, and empty in what I was supposed to be serving at meeting, and for which I was sacrificing my Sundays and my Tuesday and Thursday evenings, my whole week, really. Something in the name of which I was forced to sacrifice what would otherwise have been joyful parts of my childhood. Stuff like Star Wars and Star Trek, movies, television, Christmas, Halloween, pop music, cards, and dancing, a million little things which all add up after the first hundred things or so. Johan says, The one shameful example of rule-breaking that I most clearly recall indulging in in the 50s was watching television at the neighbor's house on Saturday mornings. We did it anyway, sensing that it was probably marginal at best. It wasn't any different a generation later for us. Oh, you could go over to the neighbors and watch Tarzan and the Super 7 or Jason of Star Command, all right. But in your culture, we all knew what that made you what kind of Christian everyone now knew you were, what kind of Christian you yourself knew you were. Marginal, at best. To me, meeting Christianity increasingly looked to me like an advertisement for itself, endlessly selling itself to itself. Jesus Christ seemed to be at most a picture decorating the team flag, or the mascot on the field, or the cartoon clown on the sign outside the hamburger restaurant a whole lot of other things entirely unrelated to pursuing a relationship with him were mainly what was going on there. It took a great deal of chutzpah to stand separate from centuries of tradition and face the simple fact that I was starving and needed something more satisfying, that I was lying with my life and needed to do something more true, that I was pretending as to who I was and needed to be who God had made me to be. But the growing process happened to me more than being something I did. Growth came to me, and God did that. And it wasn't fun. It wasn't mostly about choice. And most of the choices weren't mine. I have the kind of brain that not only can't tune out in a room when someone is addressing everyone, but which must also record tones of voice and pauses and everything. And I was recording about five hours a week of meeting stuff still. I had no choice but to take it all in. I have much of it still. Most of the time at meeting was increasingly being spent in men explaining in great detail how important our meeting felt it was, that we remember how important it was to remember the importance of all the terribly important meeting stuff and how important and right it all just really was for us to remember. Circular, fruitless, unsatisfying, but somehow very, very time-consuming and conducive to acrimonious spats over minutiae. It gave us nothing more than an aimless crusade and demanded nothing less than our very lives of us one hour at a time. There was so much that was increasingly seeming off to me about all of it. it made me want to discuss it with people to see if anyone else was seeing what I was seeing. We were taught weekly that the church we were part of with its unofficial, unwritten but strictly in place power structure and membership list was the only right one. We were taught how important it was to attend there 
and not lust after the leeks, onions, and garlic of the other churches, which no doubt had juggling, fire-eaters, and dancing girls as part of their much more interesting Sunday morning festivities. Like Garrison Keeler, I was absolutely raised to expect that that sort of thing might be going on at other churches. Leeks, onion, and garlic. These Old Testament examples of foods of Egypt that the children of Israel lusted after in the wilderness, we were told, were each characterized by having a strong, enticing flavor. Compared to it, manna slash brethren worship seemed bland. No one ever said what the also-mentioned cucumbers and melons they wanted might symbolize or appeal to, but the message was clear. God stuff equals tasteless and bland. World stuff, including other churches, zesty and possibly phallic. We were taught that there was a reward for sticking with the boring church, for sacrificing spectacle, and any appeal Appeal to the the senses senses. each Sunday morning, for swearing what was no doubt going on just up the block. The reward was our being right in a way the other Christian groups weren't. And why were we choosing Christianity to begin with, if not to be righter than everyone else? We were taught about how important our meeting was, but we were also told, in addition to meeting attendance, to read our Bibles and pray. And I did those latter two things ceaselessly, even if I slacked off on showing up at meeting once I got a driver's license. And they led me further from a church culture instead of deeper into one. This was the story for so many of us.